But over the last while, we've been speaking about the church, what the church is, what the church does, what the church is meant to be. And I hope that you feel like you're learning and growing and that almost God is helping to set that inside of you and in us as a people. And tonight, really, the message I want to share with you guys is church orientation class. So that's kind of the title of the message tonight. I'm sure all of you have been through some kind of orientation at work, at university, at school. Anyone been through orientation in their life? I see about, okay, hands are going up. I had an amazing university orientation. When I went to Howard College uh, for that two-day orientation period, it was great. We had someone who walked us around campus, showed us where to go, showed us where our lectures and tutorials would be, showed us admin blocks, answered our questions, and I felt really confident to go in on that first day. I knew where to park, I knew where to go, I knew what was happening, they clarified everything. But what a nightmare to have a terrible orientation. I'm sure this might have happened to some of you, but you've started a new job, and you've been really excited about that first day, and you've gone into the, well, you've gotten ready to go into the office on that first day, like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, really, really excited for this. This is your dream job. This is a new situation. You're hopeful this is going to be amazing. So you go and get a haircut. You go and get new clothes. You get everything ready for the next day. You have a healthy breakfast. You wake up early. Have like one of those kind of healthy shot things just to get you going. Have a little coffee. Get dressed. Get ready. Get to work early. Really excited to start out this new journey. And you get inside and you walk in and you say, here I am, Grant is here reporting for duty. And someone a little bit less excited than you says, sit over there, someone will come and help you soon. And you go, like, what are you talking about? This is my first day. This is a massive moment, you know. And you sit down in the corner, not wanting to pull out your phone because that sets a bad example. But you're kind of twiddling your thumbs for a while, waiting for someone to come and show you where to go and what to do. And after a while, when you kind of get too bored to just sit there, you grab someone who looks important and like they know what's going on and that they've got authority or they can, they can make things happen. And you go up to them and you say, Grant Clark reporting for Judy. It's my first day. I'm really excited. Where do I go? What do I do? And they go, oh, that's brilliant. Welcome on board. This is wonderful. Just sit there and I'm sure someone will sort you out soon. And those words, I'm sure, just melt any sense of confidence that this day is going to be special at all. And you go, okay, no one else is excited about this. This is not a big moment for anyone else. Me coming and joining the team, this is, this is not a special moment for the company. I'm just going to wait and see. That would be a terrible thing. That would be so unreassuring. But what we've got today in today's passage is Peter the Apostle, one of Jesus' closest friends, trained with him for three years. And at the end of all that, Jesus said, I'm sending you out to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to multiply churches. In this passage, we've got that guy giving us a church orientation class, telling us what church is all about, what we should do, what we should be, who we should be as individuals in the church, helping us to get orientated for what God has called us to do, which should sound exciting to all of us. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 today, if you've got a Bible, otherwise it will be up on the screens, and we're going to read out of the NIV today, 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. 
Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's a really beautiful passage and an amazing passage bringing clarity to who we are and what we're meant to do as the church. I hope you agree. Um, I wanted to start with a quote. I don't know if any of you have read Boundaries by Henry Cloud. Okay, we've got three. Glenda, the psychologist over there, is like, yeah, I know, loves a bit of Henry Cloud. This is from his book. I think such a helpful quote. He says, boundaries define us. They define what is me and what is not me. A boundary shows me where I end and someone else begins, leading me to a sense of ownership. And that's exactly what Peter the Apostle does here. He gives us clarity on who we are and who we aren't. Boundaries around where we uh, start and end. And this helps us to take responsibility for who we are and our identity as Christians and as the church. And he starts, Peter starts with these words. He says, but you are. Boundaries, clarity. He's defining us. And he calls us this list of amazing things. A royal priesthood. This is not just for some of us. This is for the whole church. A holy nation. God's special possession. He's orientating us. He's defining us with who we are and what the church is so that we would take ownership of this identity and role. And by saying, but you are, Peter's doing another thing. He's also contrasting us in the church, those of us who follow Jesus, with the people in the passage just before this who haven't followed him, who've stumbled over Jesus and his message and have actually rejected Christ. So let's read those verses briefly. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 4 to 8. As you come to him, as you come to him, the living stone, I just want to stop there for a second because this is where it all begins. As you come to Jesus, that's where the church begins, where your journey as a Christian begins, is with Jesus. And the reality is some people come to church, not to Jesus. Some people come to the decision, I want to be a more moral person or a better person, but not to Jesus. Some people might even say, I'm going to come here because I want this kind of environment for my children being raised, but they don't come to Jesus. But Peter is saying church begins with him. What he's describing here begins with him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is what the church is. It's a community of these living stones, people who've come to Jesus and found life in him. And now together as this living home that he's building, we are serving him and ministering as his priests. That's his definition of church here. We're being built up into God's house, God's family, God's people, God's community for God's purpose. And there's something that we need to see here is that there's a bit of an already not yet tension going on in this. Because we're given these titles, we're given this identity, but the reality is we don't always live in it. You know that. That's why so many people point fingers at the church and say, you know, I love Jesus, not the church, not the Christians, like um, Gandhi said completely lost his name there. You know, I love Jesus, but not his people, because they don't look like him. See, we're called all of these beautiful things, but they're not always true of us. But by the work of the Spirit in our lives, we are growing up to and becoming what Jesus intends for us in the church. And that's what this Here for It series is about. We're here for what God has called us to be in the church, 
We're here for what he's forming us into. We're here for this ideal that he set for us to become. I am a, a clerk. My name is Grant Newman Clark. And um, whether I act in the ways of the clerks or not, it doesn't change my name. I know for my parents, Charles and Anne, they've got certain values that they would love me to live by. And whether I do live out the Clark way and bring honor to the Clark name or not, I am still their son. I'm still part of the family. I still keep that name. And it's the same with us. We are the church, whether we live up to that title or not. We are the church. We are all of these things that Peter calls us to. And really, whether we're living up to it or not, it is still true. But this passage is orienting us or orientating us. I'm getting so struggling with those two words. Sven says orientating. He's an author, so I trust him. Peter is orientating us around the church we are meant to be, this family of God, this living temple of God, each one of us a stone placed there by God for his purpose. We're growing up into being the faithful, healthy church that Jesus has in mind with our identity in him as part of God's family. The passage carries on in verse 6, and it says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A cornerstone was used as the most important stone in a building. Right at the corner of the foundation, that stone would be placed, and it would shape the development of the rest of that building. The whole building would take its shape, its design, its feel, its orientation from that one stone. And the authors of the scriptures are saying to us here that it's the same with Christ. When you become a Christian, when you begin to follow Jesus, what happens is he becomes the cornerstone of your life, and he gives shape and design and orientation to every part of who you are and what you do. And it's the same in the church. Jesus is the cornerstone for the church community, shaping us and forming us to be his people. And we see God, the architect of life, placing this cornerstone in our lives and in this community to give shape to what we're becoming. Jesus is cornerstone. He is center. He's the starting point as you come to him. That's what's going on here. I want to get a little bit deeper into the verses we read at first, but I actually want to read it again from the message translation because as I was preparing, I so enjoyed the way that this was written. And I think it'll add a bit of... Um, nuance and texture to it as we go through it together. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, but you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you, from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. Get this, friends, this world is not your home. So don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. That line just stood out to me as I read it. In another place, Jesus says, what profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And here Peter's saying something so similar. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Don't worry about what people around you or the world around you thinks of you. Worry about what God thinks of you. And live an exemplary life in your neighborhood so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. So in Peter's church orientation class, who does he say that we are as the church? 
Well, the first thing he says is that we're chosen by God or that we're God's special possession, which means that you really matter to God. We belong to God and we're important to God. I um, definitely can go on internet deep dives and uh, get intrigued by all sorts of weird and wonderful things that hyperlinks lead me to. And I'm sure some of you have done the same, clicking and looking at how much people have paid for famous people or celebrities stuff. Have any of you looked that up before? No, I'm definitely the weird one in the room tonight, which is fine. But let me tell you three examples of how much people have paid for famous people stuff. A few years ago, someone paid $560,000, this is over nine million rand, for a pair of Michael Jordan's original Nike Air Jordan 1s that he wore in 1985 and then signed. Mike McKenna's going, I would do the same. Nine million rand for a pair of shoes. They were bought at Sotheby's on auction. Kim Kardashian paid $65,625 for a velvet jacket that Michael Jackson wore when he was young to give to her six-year-old daughter, North. And then lastly, I think this is the craziest. A lock of Elvis Presley's hair that was cut from his head reportedly in 1958 sold for $15,000, that's a quarter of a million rand, in 2009. Imagine you cut a piece of my hair tonight and 51 years later, it was sold to some passionate Grant follower for a quarter of a million rand. People will buy these things. People are so passionate and intrigued by celebrities and famous people. But what this passage says is that we are God's possession. We belong to him. He has purchased us. And actually, he paid a lot for you and I. An unimaginably high price by giving Jesus on the cross in our place for you and I, for our sins to wash us clean. Because of how valuably God sees you and I. In fact, what the scriptures teach us is we are the most valuable purchase in the history of the universe, far more even than those Air Jordan ones. So you are loved by God, you are chosen by God, and you are precious to God. That's what this passage teaches us. So never forget your value and worth. But the other thing it teaches us is that we belong to God. We are his possession. We are owned by him. So don't forget your master. As Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians, we are not our own. We were bought with a price, so honor God with your body. You are precious to God and you belong to God. Secondly, he calls us a royal priesthood. And very simply, this means a group of priests belonging to a king. Now that probably doesn't sound too interesting to us because I think these days priests aren't held in the highest regard and maybe the royal family isn't. I think there's a bit of tension there. You see the English royal family are in the news all the time, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But back in the day, it would have been a huge honor to be a priest. If you were a priest, you know, you would have respect in society. People around you would respect you and hold you in high esteem. And if you were a priest for the king, priest in a royal household, you would be the top of the top. But when this uh, idea is used, it's not being used about me as the pastor. It's not being used about the full-time Christian staff who work in the church. This idea of the royal priesthood is being used about the whole church, about every Christian, being given this title of honor and this title of responsibility and this role. That's what Peter is saying there. 
This, this title, royal priesthood, was also used in Exodus of the people of Israel. But again, it was used of the whole nation. And the role that Israel was to play in the world was to reflect and reveal the glory of the Lord to all of the nations around them. The goal was that actually as they revealed God to the peoples around them and all the other cities, towns, villages, and nations, that they would see that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, was greater than any of their gods and that they would worship and honor Him. And we have a similar job today. This passage isn't talking about famous, not famous, sorry, about paid church professionals. It's talking about every member of the church. We're all ministers, we're all missionaries, we're all priests, we're all called to play this role, revealing the glory of the Lord into the world that we live in. Everywhere we go, every single day, we all get to do ministry, we all play this role. We are a royal priesthood. Thirdly, he calls us a holy people or a holy nation. Now, if I look around this room, I know that there are people born in all sorts of different places. South Africa, Congo, New Zealand, England. I'm sure there's other places too. Born in all sorts of parts of the world. But what is going on here, as Peter speaks about us in the church, he's saying your, biogra- your geography, your biology, Your ethnicity, that is not where your identity predominantly comes from. It comes from Christ. We are a holy nation because our citizenship, our true citizenship, is really to God, our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and to His kingdom. That's who we are loyal to first and foremost above every other thing. We're a holy people, a people that is set apart to the Lord and to His purposes with everything. That comes before anything else that defines us or makes us up. And then Peter says we're instruments to do his work and to speak out for him. And what is that work? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is imagery of conversion. And it's actually pointing back to Genesis chapter 1, where in the beginning God speaks and says, let there be light. And this light emanates from God. You know, as his words come out, light happens and light shines in the darkness and it pushes back darkness. That's what's going on here. This light materializes out of nowhere to shine forth by the power of God. Conversion is often depicted in the scriptures as this transfer from darkness to light. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 even speaks about conversion as a moment where God shines his light into the darkness of our lives, to give people the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. In verse 10, it says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's reminding those of us who've been in church for a long time that there was a moment where we were saved. There was a moment where we were converted. There was a moment where we went from darkness to light. And he's saying, don't forget that moment. Don't forget the work that God did in you, because we should be grateful for that. There was a once before, and there is a now after that moment. We have a different identity because of what Jesus has done. Once you weren't God's child, you you weren't part of his family, you weren't one of his people. But now, through Jesus, you are. Once we were opposed to God, unforgiven, hostile, rebellious, Enemies of God, the scriptures say, but now we have received mercy. The grace of God is being given something that we don't deserve, but the mercy of God is not getting what we do deserve. We deserve God's punishment, 
We deserved his wrath. We deserved judgment for the things that we had done, that we were in sin. But now, because of what Jesus has done, we stand in a completely new space. Peter wants to remind us of that, how significant that is. Once we were, but now we are this because of Jesus and his grace. As the message version says in verse 10, the night and day difference he made for you, from nothing to something, from rejection to acceptance. It's beautiful. For those of you who have been Christians for a long time, do you remember that? Do you remember what he's done for you? Do you remember what he saved you from? Are you grateful for his work in your life? We don't want to forget the grace of God and what he's done from darkness to light. In 1 Peter 2 verse 11, Peter writes and says, Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. And this really stood out to me as I was preparing. It feels like smelling salts or this wake-up call or, or something just bold and in your face. And he starts with the word friends. And I like that. Paul's trying to connect, or Peter's trying to connect with us a little bit here. Friends. Some of the other translations would say beloved, which is an old-fashioned word that we don't use too much. But actually, we've got this, this situation where an apostle one of Jesus' closest friends, is urging us to something, and he's connecting with us. And some of the guys say, you know, the way he calls us beloved, that feels too strong and hard to connect with. Friends feels too weak, a little bit insipid. You know, you'd call anyone a friend. Maybe a better way of translating this is to say, I beg you as those whom I love. And before we get into what Peter's going to beg us, I'd love us to just hear this. An apostle writing in Scripture is saying, I beg you, because of my love for you, to hear what I'm about to say. I think we should take this very, very seriously, because this seems really important. The NIV phrases it this way, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And we get more identity words there. There's a lot of them in here. We're foreigners or aliens and exiles. You know, this is not our home. Peter's trying to remind us, actually, that we live in a world which is temporary residence for us. Actually, our homeland is heaven. God is our king. You know, we're waiting to be with him. This is foreign soil for us. And he's calling us not to live the way the people of this world live, but to live the way of God and his people. So we shouldn't get cozy in this world, but we should abstain from the passions of the flesh. And Galatians 5 lists them. You can get into this list in a serious way. This is intense. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfish ambition, ungodly fighting, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, other sins like these. And if you notice, some of those are internal sins of the heart, envy, jealousy. Some are external things that we choose to do and to act out on. And Peter's saying to us here, actually, we must fight against these sinful desires inside of us. And he's also saying to us, these inward desires of ours are things that we can overcome. We're not ruled by them. They sometimes feel very loud. These draws, these pulls sometimes feel very strong, but they don't master us. We can master them. He says these sinful desires wage war on our souls. It means they're not neutral and they're not innocent things. These are actually like enemy soldiers fighting inside of us wanting to deal the death blow to our souls, to our life, to our inner world. 
And I think sometimes we can be like, oh, Grant, just relax. You know, I know you've got to preach this stuff, but it's fine. Just relax. Sometimes it's a Friday night. I like to let loose a little bit, just ease off the pedal a bit. And maybe I'll delve into some of these Galatians 5 things. It's not the end of the world, you know. Just it's fine. But what Peter's saying is we aren't just giving into a cheeky little innocent guilty pleasure when we do this. When we do, we're letting down our defenses and letting these enemy soldiers inside of our souls wage war on what is most important to us and defeat us. Peter knows our human nature. He knows the way we're wired. He knows the way we feel and what we desire and how we are driven and led. And he knows these things are a challenge for all Christians. And that's why he writes and urges us. He doesn't just warn us, he urges us to take this stuff seriously because sin can be so appealing and attractive in our lives. That's why we must actively reject it. 1 Peter 2 verse 11, friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. What an amazing line. This life is so short. We don't know how much time we've got left. I turned 36 in January, and I said to Shell recently, on my 36th birthday, I'll be closer to 50 than I will to 21. Absolutely heartbreaking. I realize some of you have done that journey already for me. I'm like, woof, I'm on the slippery slide to 40. It's happening fast. And because of how fast time goes, I can't believe how quickly the last 10 years have gone. Because of how fast time goes, Peter's warning us, don't get comfortable in this world. It's so easy to get comfortable and to lose sight of why we're here and what we're called to do as Christians, what we're called to do as the church, what our purpose is in this world, and to lose 10 years and to have wasted that time. Peter wants to give us an eternal perspective. Now, some of you might have heard me use this illustration before. I borrowed this from Francis Chan, and I haven't got an actual rope today, but I want you to imagine that I did. Not just a short rope, but an eternal rope, an infinitely long rope. And I took this rope and I throw it. I hold on to it, but I throw the other end and it goes down the hall, turns left, up Gordon Road, down Florida, onto Amgeni, onto the N3, all the way up to Johannesburg and just keeps going. And this rope goes all the way north, up through Africa, through towns and villages and cities, starts to track the Nile, gets to Cairo, hops the Mediterranean into Europe, breaking all sorts of COVID protocols and just doing things it shouldn't be doing, all the way through Europe, North Pole, and then starts to track. Now, if you're a flat earther, you're not going to like this, but go down the other side, North America, South America, South Pole, and then loops again and again infinitely. You know, not just once or twice, just keeps going again and again and again forever. If I was to hold on to the other end of that rope, just a speck on that rope would be our full life term in this world, and the rest would be eternal life which lies in front of us, wrapping again and again and again and again and again around the world. And Peter is lifting our heads. He's reminding us that life is short and that we live in a bigger story than what the world around us is telling us. And he's doing this because he knows we need to hear this. I remember reading a tweet a few years ago by a man named Terry Virgo, a pastor in the UK, and he said the reason that Paul needed to tell people in his letters not to steal was because people in the churches were stealing. <laughs> he needed to do it because it was going on in the churches. The reason Peter needs to say this is because people in the church are getting too cozy in this world. 
too comfortable in the world, too much like the world, forgetting what Jesus has called us to. He knows the power around us to draw us into comfort and ease. The power of social media and advertising and the busyness of life and TV and the culture and society around us that are telling us a ton of messages and pulling us in so many directions and trying to get us to prioritize what they want us to prioritize for whatever reason they want us to prioritize those things. And Peter knows that he needs to write this warning to us because it's relevant, because it's true. Many Christians are getting too cozy in the world and forgetting what we are called to. We need to be reorientated to God's purposes. And then it ends with this amazing line in verse 12. Live an exemplary life in your neighborhood. That's something that would be great to put up on your fridge or your wall, hey? So that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. Peter knows that actually in this life, people will be prejudiced against us, won't think the message that we hold to is true, won't be interested in Jesus. I'm sure many of you have experienced that in different ways and forms. I did a wedding recently, and at the end of that, you know, there was a moment where I said, I realize not all of us are on the same um, page here when it comes to faith and marriage, but this couple have decided that they want to build their life with Jesus Christ as their foundation. One of the guests came up to me afterwards. He had one or two or three or four drinks. He said, Grant, I loved your message. I thought it was brilliant. I especially love the part where you said we're not all on the same page because I am definitely not on your page. <laughs> and I appreciated that. He was honest with me. He was real with me. He was on a different page to me. But what Peter is saying to us here is that even when you face prejudice, even when you aren't, or people are not on the same page as you, live an exemplary life in your neighborhood. Set an example of Christ with your words, with your actions, with your love, with your faith, with your generosity, with your hope, with your words, with the message that we share. Set an exemplary message. Last night, I was um, intending to go watch the French Dispatch. Uh, any, anyone excited for that? Again, okay, Cornet, we've got like three people in the room. It's apparently the most Wes Anderson of all Wes Anderson films. That's a direct quote from a review that I read. It's a new movie that was meant to come out a year ago, but lockdown just got in the way. It's been a real nightmare. It's the new Timothy Chalamet film for any T-Shell fans in the room. Again, I'm just like striking out time and time again tonight. Any Bill Murray? No, we're not, just not going to win. But Shell and I were really excited for this movie for a year. We'd watched all the trailers, and you know the way trailers work now. They release like a two-and-a-half-minute trailer, then a one-and-a-half-minute trailer, then another trailer, then like kind of a rehashed trailer, and then one about one or two of the characters. So we'd watched all of those, and we were excited. And on Wednesday or Thursday, we were booking tickets with friends for this, and we got excited. We went on the website, and on Thursday, the movie went off circuit. Obviously, the Durbanites weren't big fans of Wes Anderson. <laughs> it was out for like a week, week-and-a-half. So we were devastated. We've been looking forward to this for a year. But those trailers whet our appetite. We'd watch them again and again. We'd gotten so excited. And what Peter is trying to say to us here is he says, live exemplary lives. Is as we live in this world in our neighborhoods, we are wanting to whet people's appetite for the kingdom of God and what Jesus is like. And when people see our lives, when they hear our message, when they see our love, when they see the, the different countercultural reality of how we live, there should be something of an interest, at least, in the more of God, in the ways of God, a questioning about what this is all about. 
the church is meant to be a pilot plant of the kingdom of God in this world. Firstly, the kingdom of God is lived out amongst us, in and among the Christians that make up the church. And Harbor City, I've seen some of you do this so well over the last two years as people have gone through difficulty. But also, we're to extend the kingdom of God into the world out there through the lives that we live and the words that we speech, speak. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Chris, will you come up? And Eugene. Um, Harbor City, this is why we exist. To let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father that is in heaven. This is the end of Peter's church orientation class. And as a church, we are here for it. This is why we exist. This is what we live for, to, to live into the identity that we are given as the people of Jesus, to, to be his community, and then to speak out his message, to live it out, to shine it out into the world that we're in, to let our light shine. So can I ask you guys to stand with me? We're going to pray in just a moment, but we're going to go out with a song together. I'd love you to process these things, and maybe it is that as we've welcomed the Spirit here tonight, that He's spoken to you and highlighted something to you. But I just want to ask that we would become this kind of church. So Holy Spirit, as we have welcomed you here, I do just ask that you would speak to us even now um, about the things that you want us to know and believe and change and do. And if there's anything particular for each of us that you're wanting to stand out, I pray it would be very, very clear even now, Lord. I thank you that you'd bring clarity to us. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you would also empower us. As I think of these beautiful titles, royal priesthood, holy nation, all of these things, we ask you for your power to do that. And even power to live exemplary lives in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, amongst our families, that you would empower us to shine that light, to reveal your kingdom, to be that amazing trailer that whets people's appetite for more of you and your kingdom. So would you do it, Lord? Would you do it among us, I pray. In Jesus' name.